0: I want to talk about the God told me. We're in this series called Unhelpful, where we've been exploring some unhelpful things we say. That, and these are not just r- regular unhelpful things, these are unhelpful things that are steeped in religiosity and in religion and in the language of religion, in God language. Um, and for me, I think the one that maybe at times the hardest ha- over the years has been the God told me. Now, let's just be honest has anybody in here ever God told somebody? As she's leaving, yes. Uh, Me, I've done that, of course, of course. I actually, we were clearing out our attic space yesterday, and I found this tub of stuff from when I was in college. And I'd forgotten that the local newspaper in the college town had written a little story about me when I was a 21 year old preacher kid, and they were interviewing me because I was a 21 year old preacher kid, and I was reading, and the amount of religious language, I was like, we should burn this and tell no one it happened. It was te- I, I don't remember being that person in some ways, but I really was. And so there's no shame here. Of course, I bet most of us, if you grew up in a religious environment, I bet you were trained and conditioned to, to God tell me things to people. Anybody ever break up with somebody because God told you to? Anybody ever been broken up with because God told them to? And it was funny that God was telling you something else. All right, God was telling you this is forever, and they were like, well, God told me we're done. And the wires somehow got crossed. Anybody ever, God told me you should do this, and it's the last thing you wanted to do, and you felt zero desire to do it, but now you're kind of stuck, because if God's telling people I should do it, then maybe I should do it. And I have questions about What does it mean to say God told me? Does that, did God send like an email? Was there a loud, booming voice from the sky that said, thou shalt do this? (laughs) Did God slide into their DMs and say, this is what you should do? Where does this language come from? And it also pops up in the language of prayer, too. And people say, I'll pray about it, which is almost universally they're going to tell you no. But when they tell you no, it's going to be because God told them in prayer to tell you no. So if you have a problem with that, then it's ultimately it's God, right? God didn't lead me in that direction. And so today I want to think about that. Does God tell us things? How do we know if it's God telling us things? What if people end up disagreeing about what God is telling people? Right? We, We have tons and tons of Christian denominations because at some point two people thought God was telling them opposing things. Who is right? How do you decide who is right? Do you flip a coin? Is that the best God can do? How does this whole thing work? But I think we should begin, and each week I've tried to begin by just maybe offering some reasons like why we might say this. Why why might it be that people feel compelled to say, God told me. God told me that you should do this. God told me that I should do this. God told me that they should do this. God told me this was going to happen. This is a direct message from God. Why do we do that? I think sometimes it comes from a really genuine place. I think there are sometimes people say, God told me, and it's not a grift, and they're not trying to harm anyone. Now, that doesn't separate out the actual fact that it can harm people, right? I mean, intentions are great, but lived experience is reality. Are you with me? But I think some people, God told me this because they really mean it. They genuinely believe it. It's something, they're not trying to put on all sorts of religiosity. They're just trying to be honest. I think sometimes... People say it because it's grounded in a desire to make meaning and to sort of have God's validation, right? How do I know that God validates what I do? Well, God told me to do it. Can, Can I just share some really good news with you? You do not need God's validation. You already have God's validation. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to live up to it. You don't have to prove it. It is yours. How many of you in this room right now you're breathing? Okay, the rest of you, we've got some problems we need to solve (laughs) because breathing is necessary. If you're breathing, you have the validation of God on your life and your existence because to be born into the world as a human being is to be born into the world as an image bearer of the divine. What you're chasing, what we're chasing as a species so often is the thing that we come standard from the factory with. And so much of religion has taught us over the years that we're, we need God's validation, when actually what they mean is you need our religious institution's validation, and that's a whole other thing. Because at the end of the day, you do not need a religion or a religious institution's validation. You have God's. And, and that is the gift. But I think sometimes people need to feel like the message was from God because the only way this could be valid is if it was coming straight from the mouth of God. Like if I have an opinion, if I have a perspective, if I have an interpretation It's not good enough. I need need to put God's seal of approval on it. I think sometimes people say it because they really want to control other people. Right? Because if I come up to you and I say, Murphy, God told me to tell you this, and then you don't receive it, or you don't do what God told me you should do, then suddenly we've got a problem. Isn't that great? God told us to do that today, and it was so, so great. So sometimes it's about control. Religion at its most toxic form is ultimately about controlling other people, right? Religion at its most toxic form doesn't want you to hear the words that are being sung backstage right now. God is with you. God is for you. God is on your side. Religion at its most toxic wants to control you. It wants to control what you think. It wants to control what you wear. It wants to control where you go, what you eat, what you drink. What you it wants to control the totality of your being. I can remember being in youth group in the 90s. And just in case you're not, a, maybe you are past the point or maybe you're younger, I just want you to know this now. The 90s, it's the single best decade of music in human history. Now that's a message from God. It, it is the single best decade of music, especially like, nine, like, like you know, I don't even want to get, I'm, I'm just going to go off on a tangent, but I mean, like, the 90s gave us Octoon Baby from U2. The 90s gave us um, Matchbox 20. The 90s gave us Nirvana. The 90s gave us Grunge People. The 90s gave us so many good and beautiful gifts. And when I was in the 90s, ni- when I was in my 90s, in the 90s, In youth group, I can remember those conversations about if you have CDs, CDs were kind of new. If you have CDs at your house that are not Christian CDs, you need to get rid of them. And I had spent like $350,000 through Columbia House and BMG to get those CDs. Like some of you remember, there would be little ads in magazines. You can get 10 CDs for a penny. All you have to do is buy three more for $400 each. And you're set. Right? Total scam. But I had an incredible collection of CDs that I just got rid of because they weren't Christian CDs and I shouldn't be doing things like like, control. Because if we can control what you're doing and what you're taking in, then we can shape the message and tailor it so that you will do exactly what we want you to do. I think sometimes people, God told them things and ultimately it comes about their desire to control Other people. Sometimes it's a grab for authority or credibility that hasn't been earned. If somebody has authority in your life to like say things to you, it it should be because they've earned it, not because they have a position that tells you you, that you should give it to them. Right? But often the God told me stuff is like, I I know that I don't have credibility in your life and I know I don't have the authority in your life to, to say this to you, but God told me, so now I do. It's essentially taking... A place in somebody's life that you have not earned, that you haven't shown up to be in, that you haven't proven that you're trustworthy in, and you're asking people to give it to you anyway, which is why so often, if you're paying attention to the news, that lots of churches that do this end up harming lots and lots of people because people demanded to have authority in somebody's life when it wasn't earned and they couldn't be trusted with it. And I think all of those are reasons that people say God told me. From the genuine, I had this experience, I feel like I had this message here that, that I don't feel like it came from me, it came from someone, somewhere, someone else, down to, and I don't think people who are trying to manipulate and control wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to use God to manipulate and control others. I think you just end up in a spiral and you don't know what to do and you're grasping for things and suddenly you're saying God told me. So, with all of that out there, does God tell us things? Does God speak to us? Now, I want to begin with this group of people known as the prophets. And I think we need to begin by dispelling a Christian false myth narrative about what a prophet is. Um, prophets were not predictors of the future. That was not what their role was for. Now, what a prophet might do is... A prophet would sort of read the tea leaves. A prophet would be somebody who would look at and say, well, there's A and there's B, and it looks like those two things are going to combine to equal C. So the prophets would look at what was going on in in the society, and they would realize things things aren't going well, and so we need to say something about it. But here's what's interesting. It always began... Well, first of all, every prophet has a call story. Um, And it usually will go something like this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Right. The word of the Lord came to Amos. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. And when they said the word of the Lord, what did that mean? Did that mean like an Amazon drone showed up, dropped off a box, they opened it, and there was a leather-bound, gilded-edged with their name on it, King James Bible, because if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Like, Is that what it means? Because often we've said, well, oh, the Bible is the word of God. Interestingly, the Bible never makes the claim. The Bible actually contains stories where prophets go, well, the word of the Lord came to me. I was out minding my own business, doing my own thing, and the word of the Lord came to me. And Jeremiah says that this word that he was given, it was actually a fire in his bones, and he was weary of holding it in. Like it was this message that these prophets believed was a message that was communicated by God through them to people which is why they often begin by saying, thus says the Lord. You find prophets saying a lot of thus says the Lord, or the old translation, thus saith the Lord, right? And so prophets essentially were people who believed they were called to speak a message of God to the people. And it wasn't like most of them didn't, like they weren't prophets for a career, like they didn't have an IRA, they weren't putting money into it every month, and like preparing for profit retirement. Were, it was usually situational, and it was never going to one person. And I mean, the person could, yes, they would go to the king, for example. But the message was never for one person. It was not, king, I really think you should ask so-and-so out on a date, because God told me you're all supposed to be together. It wasn't at that level. It was, king. You are presiding over an unjust society. You are presiding over a culture where the rich are getting richer at the expense of the poor. You are presiding over a culture where people are being bought and sold. You are presiding over a culture where people are being marginalized and abused. And God has an opinion about that. And... So they would speak to the injustice of the culture and they would speak truth to people in power. Let me give you a couple examples. My favorite uh, prophet in the Hebrew Bible is Amos. Anybody ever read the book of Amos? Um, Amos seems a bit cranky. That's because he is. He's cranky about the injustice. And often when Amos will make these proclamations, Amos does it in the voice of God. So Amos will say, here's what God has said. Here's what the Lord has proclaimed. So listen to Amos 5. Um, And this starts out really cheery, so get ready. Doom. Isn't that great? Like in some translations it might say, whoa. Whoa, doom to those who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or sought refuge in a house, rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Now, he's talking about this thing, the day of the Lord. And the prophets had different opinions on what that would be and when that would be. But essentially, it was a day when God would uh, vindicate Israel or Judah. It was a day when, when God would say, these are my people and they're right. Right? It was a day of justice. And here's what Amos is saying. To the people in power, the day of the Lord isn't good news. To the people who are being abused by the people in power, the day of the Lord is very good news. Which is why sometimes when we read the Bible, we have to remember, so much of it was written by people, almost all of it, was written by people on the underside of power. People who were being oppressed. And so when citizens of the greatest, most powerful, wealthy, military empire ever known read the Bible, we tend to read it as if it's like pro-us And the reality is it's warning us. It's warning us about what happens in a society when the rich, we we live through a global pandemic and the rich magically get richer and richer and richer and the poor somehow end up getting poorer and poorer and poorer. Pandemics don't affect people evenly, right? And so Amos begins by saying, look, some of you all in the king's palace, some of you all and..." in the aristocracy of the temple, you all are going around excited about the day of the Lord. Well, I want you to know that if that moment comes, it is not going to be good news for your bottom line. It is not going to be good news for the vast amounts of wealth you are hoarding. It's not going to be good news for those who spend enough money buying a social media outlet when they could have actually dealt with world hunger. Right? Like, the the day of the Lord seeks to address those inequities. It's seeking to speak to it. And so Amos, right away, he's cranked up. Isn't the day of the Lord darkness, not light? All dark with no brightness in it? And now he's going to start speaking in the voice of God. I hate I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. If you bring me your entirely burned offerings and gifts of food, I won't be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's a word from God through this prophet who's saying, listen, If you want the day of the Lord to be good news for you, live now in such a way as when the day of the Lord happens, you don't have to change anything. Right? If you want the day of the Lord to be a bright, joyous occasion for you, begin living your life now as if the day of the Lord had already come. Care for your neighbors. Care for the unhoused. Share your resources. Seek justice in the world now. And then when the day of the Lord comes, but he's like, right now, your festivals, when you guys get together and make all that music that you think is so joyous and celebratory, I can't stand to listen to it. In the New Testament, the writer named Paul would say something like, it really doesn't matter what words you use. If you don't have love, it's just a clanging gong. Understanding that love is... Primarily not a fuzzy emotion, but about practically doing the work of love in the world. Here's another from Isaiah. Just a little, because I know some of you are going to end up at a party at some point, and they're going to want some Bible trivia. I don't know what kind of parties you're going to, if that's not what happens. Um, The book of Isaiah, actually scholars believe there were at least three different authors responsible for the book of Isaiah. Um, That likely, maybe from the same school... But it's likely that because of scroll lengths and such, they end up, these three different texts from three different eras in the, the life of Israel get stuck together. And so what we're going to look at today is from, they call it Trito or Third Isaiah, which means this is a later text. It would be after the people come back from exile or during the return from exile. So they've experienced utter defeat. The temple has been raised. They were taken into a land that wasn't there, theirs, and now they're coming home. And here's what Isaiah says. Shout loudly, don't hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, announce to my people their crime, to the house of Jacob their sins, they seek me day after day desiring knowledge of my ways like a nation that acted righteously, that didn't abandon their God. They ask me for righteous judgments, wanting to be close to God. Why do we fast and you don't see? Why afflict ourselves and you don't notice? Yet, on your fast day, you do whatever you want, and you oppress all your workers. You quarrel and brawl, and then you fast. You hit each other violently with your fists. You shouldn't fast as you are doing today if you want to make your voice heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I choose, a day of self-affliction? Of bending one's head like a reed, of lying down in mourning, clothing, and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Do you see the critique? You're going through religious ritual. And at the same time, you're harming your workers. You're going through, you're using religious platitudes, and at the same time, you're beating each other up. Isn't this the fast I choose? Releasing wicked restraints, untying the ropes of a yoke, setting free the mistreated, and breaking every yoke. Isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house, covering the naked when you see them, and not hiding from your own family? Do you see the critique? It's this, you claim to speak for God and you claim to do these things for God. And yet they're just empty rituals. In the tradition of the Bible, in the Hebrew tradition, the prophets were people who were speaking to the urgent moment. Now that urgent moment, they may say, has ripples of consequence. Right? Like if we don't change this, then this is where it's going to go. Right? It's, it's, it's what's happening in our world today when people say, this is the problem we have on planet Earth right now. Our climate is changing at a rapid rate, and it's going, it's going to unravel everything. if we like, They're not predicting something. They're, they're seeing what's in front of them, and then they're modeling it out. All right, that's exactly what prophets were doing in their own time, in their own context. They were looking at what was in front of them and realizing that this was going to have lasting effects. So in the tradition, the prophets would say, I have a message from God. Now, what's really interesting is if you go and read all the prophets, which I assume you're going to do this afternoon, you go read all of them, the the major prophets, the minor prophets, all of them, what you'll find out is at times they had conflicting, thus saith the Lord messages. You will find prophets who say, here's what God says you should do. Beat your swords into plowshares. Then you have another prophet who says, here's what God's telling you to do. Beat your plowshares into swords. And then we are left to suss out and sort out what actually is, which is the message of God? Who is the divine speaking to? Is it those who call for violence or is it those who are calling us away from violence? Where is God actually speaking? And all of this, actually, this this God told me stuff, reminds me of a teaching of Jesus. And it comes from Matthew 7. We're not going to read it but I bet most of us probably are aware of it. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has this teaching where he says, do not judge, or you'll be judged. Before you judge somebody else, get the speck out of their eye, take the two by four out of your eye. Right? How many of you know that teaching? And then he goes on to say things like, um, don't throw what is sacred to dogs, and don't throw pearls before swine, because then the swine will get mad and trample you. And then he goes on and he says something like this, ask, it will be given to you, Seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. How many of you are familiar with that teaching? Do you know what I think Jesus is actually doing in that block of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? I actually think Jesus, by talking about judging, he's talking about control and coercion. Why do we judge people? Like, just because it's fun. Like, no, why do we judge people? Why, Why do we create people who are on the outside and then try to peer pressure them to do what it takes to get on the inside? Because ultimately, we want to control people, we want to control their behavior, we want to control what they do. Judging is trying to control people with negativity, through the negative. If you don't do what we say, we'll judge you and we'll cast you out and you'll be alone. We'll make fun of you, we'll bully you, we'll make your life a living hell. If you don't do what we say that you have to do to be in, then you're out. But what does it mean to throw pearls before swine? How many of you all have ever been around a real live pig before? Anybody? It's a trip. How many of you have ever gone up to a pig and offered it a string of pearls? I wish to goodness one time when I talk about this, somebody would raise their hand like, yeah, I did it. Didn't go well. Here's the thing. Do you know what pigs can't appreciate? Pearls. They don't have a concept. I think what Jesus is getting there—he's not trying to slam anybody. I think what he's saying is judging people is trying to control them through the negative. But sometimes we even try to control people through the positive. I'm going to give you something you're not ready for. I'm going to just to get you to come around to do exactly what I think you should do. Jesus is like, don't try to control people with neg- negative. Don't try to manipulate and coerce them with the positive. Instead, ask, seek, and knock. I don't think Jesus is necessarily talking about asking God will give you whatever you ask. I think maybe what he's saying is ask and maybe your neighbor will. Maybe you don't need to control or manipulate. Maybe if you just honestly say, here's, my, here's what I need, maybe your neighbor will show up. Instead of trying to control and coerce and get people to do what you want, maybe it's just about showing up and saying, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a community where I can be vulnerable and honest, not where I have to keep up this facade all the time. And if if you're like me, our religious upbringing probably taught us how to build a facade, how to maintain it, but what they didn't tell us along the way is that is really unhealthy. And we spend all of our time trying to control how people see us, whether it's through the negative or the positive what we end up losing is any sort of real, honest, vulnerable connection. And so often, God told me, bypasses any opportunity of vulnerability. And it is grasping for authority and credibility that you have not yet earned. And there is a reason why so many times when somebody says that to you, all the little lights on your dashboard light up and all the alarms go off. Because what that's trying to tell you is, I am not safe in this moment. Somebody is trying to manipulate, somebody is trying to control, somebody is trying to bypass my consent, somebody's up to something, and they're doing it for lots of their own reasons, but this is not a thing I wanna be part of. I'm gonna tell you something they never told me growing up, but I think it's true. Pay attention to your gut. Learn to trust the thing in you that goes, yep, not safe. Yeah, there's an ulterior motive. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a real thing. I think Jesus is inviting us. And one of the best examples of this in Jesus' life is the story of the rich young ruler. Does anybody know the story? This guy comes up to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to experience eternal life, which is a whole different discussion. He's not asking about heaven. But what do I have to do to experience the reign of God now? What, what do I have to do to bring heaven to earth? And Jesus says, oh, that's easy peasy. Just sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and let's go. Follow me. And the text says that the guy turns around and leaves and he was sad because he had a lot of money. You know what Jesus doesn't do? Hey, rich young ruler, God told me. God told me you should follow me and that you should give me 10% of your income. <laughs> God, God told me. You know what Jesus does? Jesus lets him go. Because Jesus understands that if you manipulate and coerce people to be a part of your thing, then you'll never actually have the thing you want, which is, even if you don't know it deep down, is community, it's relationship. It's experiencing transformation, not on your own little island, but with other human beings. It's sitting around a table and breaking bread and drinking wine and celebrating the goodness of God's world together. And there are moments, really beautiful moments, where Jesus sort of lays all the cards on the table completely transparently with people and says, "You you can do this or you cannot. He doesn't play like 17 verses of just as I am waiting for them to come back. He lets them make a choice. If this is too much and you don't want to choose it, no manipulation, no guilt, no coercion, you're free to go. And the reality is so, so many of us in this room probably have experienced when our faith began to shift and we thought about moving on, people trying to manipulate and control us to keep us. I think Jesus is modeling something else. So does does God speak to us? I think so. I think think the divine wants to commune with us. I think the divine wants to speak to us. Here's the difference. I, I think God invites us and inspires us, but God doesn't coerce us. I don't think God will tell us anything. I think God will always invite us. Look, here's the thing you can be a part of. Here's the adventure you can sign up for. Here's a vision for the world that through your participation could become a reality. You want in, you're in. You don't want in, okay. You you can go do the other things you want to do in the world. You can go create a very different kind of world. I think human history has been a great example of what happens when we go and create that other kind of world. I think we're living in the chaos of that kind of world. So what's the alternative? If we don't want to go around telling people God told us all this stuff, even if you believe, like, I actually think even if I have the sense of, like, there's something in here that I I think I had help with. The minute you say God told me, it creates a whole icky kind of relationship with the people you're talking to, right? So if we want to avoid that, how do we do that? I think, one, we always get consent one of the most frustrating things is when somebody comes up to you and tells you what God has to say to you and they don't even ask you first if you would like to participate right so i think beginning by saying I would love I have I have some things I'd like to share but if you're not ready and you don't want me to share them I don't want to share them I I want you to have the choice of whether or not we have this interaction which is one of the there's a lot of problems with soul winning and and that whole business But one of the big problems is nobody ever really asks you. They just sort of like hand you a tract and tell you you're going to hell without any sort of like, yeah, I would like to know about that. Now, I think there's a reason for that because it's not a very good bit of news and nobody's going to say yes, probably. But I think consent is important. Before we just unload what we think on somebody, we should say, hey, do you want to hear this? Would you like to sign up for participation in what I'm about to tell you? Second, I think it's important to use I language. And and here's why. Even if I think that I have had help with something, that this is not just straight from me, but the, the divine and I collaborated on this, the minute I say God told me this, that creates a whole other set of expectations, and it creates a whole ickiness in our relationship. And so the reality is, what if I say a thing that actually God had nothing to do with that ends up making God look horrible? Case in point, the world. Religious broadcasting, the whole thing. Where God's name gets dragged through the mud because people use God's name very lightly and they attach things to God that maybe actually aren't very good and God would want nothing to do with. So I think just saying eye language, here's what I think. And I think you can also use the language of conviction. Like, I, I feel really convicted about this and that can sound a little icky and religious too, but I like the word conviction better than God told me. Like, I've been thinking about this, I've been wrestling with it, and here's what I've come up with. I think another way to think about it is to talk about faith. We have certainty masquerading as faith. Right? We, in the world, and I'm, I, you just, if you just make a comment online about how certainty doesn't exist, you will have Christian after Christian telling you, oh, yes, it does. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, how do you know? Well, I'm certain about it. Well, that's not circular reasoning. <laughs> but here's the thing. What we actually need to talk about is faith. And faith is trust. Faith is not certainty. Faith has no guarantees. Faith is born out of a sense of conviction. It's, it's built on stuff I believe and maybe have really good reasons to believe. But when the chips are down, it's still, it's not, it's not grounded in certainty. We haven't studied it all in a lab, and now we know the results. And so I think humbly held faith is something sorely lacking in the world around us. A willingness to show up and say, here's what I think, I'm probably wrong about some of it. And if I knew which parts I was wrong about, I would go ahead and be not wrong about them. But I don't know. And so I'm going to hold this with humility because I bet you have some things that clash with this that I hope you'll hold with humility to. And then I, I would love to bring back the language of bearing witness. You know what bearing witness is about? Bearing witness is a way of saying, I, it's that beautiful moment in the Gospel of John where the man who had been born blind has been healed by Jesus. And the religious leaders come and ask him, tell us about Jesus, he's a sinner, isn't he? And he says, "Like I don't know whether the guy's a sinner, but here's what I know, I was blind and now I see. That is bearing witness. I can't speak from the mountain. I can't tell you definites. I cannot speak with certitude, but I can tell you what my experience has been. I can tell you why I believe that the presence of Jesus is still real and around. I can tell you why with everything I know about all these other things, there's something that keeps drawing me back to this tradition in this place, in this moment. I can speak out of my experience. I can't speak out of your experience. I can't speak, and I think part of our problem is we want to speak out of everyone's experience and really the only one I have access to is mine. I can tell you who Jesus has been for me. I can tell you what this tradition has come to mean for me. And bearing witness, by the way, does it then say, now you all have to have my experience. Bearing witness says, here's, I have tasted and seen and I just want to tell you about that. And now I'm going to sit down and be quiet and let you tell me about yours. Bearing witness is very different than God told me. Are you with me? Bearing witness is an invitation. I want to share, but I want you to share. I I want I want to hear how this lands for you, and through the lens of your experience, how this hits. And I want to hear so that I can understand your experience through. Like it's this invitation, and y'all. I think there's something to be said to entrusting other people to the goodness and grace of God. Sometimes we want to control people, and it's really well intended. Right? How, how many of you have adult kids? Or kids that maybe chronologically are adults? We can talk about the rest of it. Yeah. I, I'm just, as I'm watching our oldest grow up, I notice an impulse in me, and he's only, you know, he's a preteen right now. But I'm noticing an impulse in me where I just want to control it all. Because I'm sort of, and I'm sure this is how my parents feel, I'm sort of standing back here looking at his life. And he's sort of right here looking at his life. And I'll be like, oh, I can help you miss all the potholes, baby. Just listen to dad, and we're going to navigate this perfectly. And the reality is that is, I think, probably a surefire way to ruin your relationship with your kid or with any other human being. It is really easy to stand behind somebody else and look at their life and go, I can tell you how to fix everything in 45 minutes. <laughs> how old are you, 35? Yeah, 25 minutes. You haven't lived that long yet, right? Like, like this, there's this desire, and, and maybe born from a place of deep goodness, but it's the surefire way to choke out a relationship. There's something to be said with saying, I'm gonna do the best I can. I'm gonna teach them the best I can. But at some point, through gritted teeth and white knuckles, there are moments where you just have to entrust those you love or those you would like to change and can't, because you can't change people, where you entrust them to the grace of God. The same grace that holds you, the same grace that sustains you, is the same grace that is available to them. And other humans around you are going to make mistakes, because so do you and I. It's interesting that that same goodness and grace that has caught you every single time will catch them. And so, last thing. How do I know it's God? That's the big question. Like, how do I know it's God? I don't know. But I, I do have a couple of litmus tests now. It used to be that I would have said to you, well, you know it's God because it'll line up with the Bible. But there's some really bad stuff in the Bible that people could line up with. Right? Can we just be honest about that? Like somebody could come in with a perspective that lines up with the Bible and you would still be like, yikes. That's not good. So here's the two things I'll say. One, is it life affirming? Does it, does it affirm human life? And then the second one is, does it lead to human flourishing? Does it affirm human life? Does it paint a picture of humanity that's just awful and like why would you want to be one? Does it just produce guilt and shame? Does it just make you want to hide? Does it make you feel bad about yourself? With no real way to not feel bad about yourself. Does it just beat you up all the time? Or does it call you to be your best self? Does it call you to become everything you can become? Does it call you to take every good thing in you and leverage it for the goodness of the world around you? does it call you to be a human being that flourishes in the world? Then I think if that's the case, there's a pretty good chance that there's some divine fingerprints all over that. Does it call you to your truest self? Or does it call you to become different selves? Because if it's calling you to become different selves for different people, I don't think that's what, I don't think the divine fingerprints are all over that. Because I think God's goal for the world, ultimately, for us, for human beings, is that we would be fully alive, that we would live our lives to the absolute fullest. So that when we leave this world, we actually leave it better than we found it. I think God calls us to work for the flourishing of one another. And friends, that we have lots of siblings on this planet right now who are not flourishing, which means we still have work to do. Are you with me? And maybe you could say God told us that, because that—that can be tested. Let's pray.